0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anul Polat. Welcome to this special Geek Takeover Week episode of the podcast. Like many of you know, things kind of slow down around here in August. So basically, the site kind of takes some time off. Uh, I'm working behind the scenes, getting ready for all the tech that's coming up in September. But really, the the site and now, now the podcast, too, takes part in this hiatus which is essentially while you guys are, when there's not a pandemic going on, while you guys are all traveling, I'm kind of working behind the scenes and getting ready for the fall rush that always happens. But during that time, I take over the site. We have guest writers. We have all kinds of different things that have really little or maybe nothing to do with travel or tech. It's really just kind of a free-for-all, specifically nerdy, geeky, Whatever kind of fandom you're in, you might find it on Geek Week. So this week, for this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast, a special Geek Takeover week. Wait, let me let me uh, fix this. This Geek
1: Takeover week has a very special guest. Did that, did that uh, sound borgy enough? Okay, let me, let, me, let me go back to regular voice.
0: But before we get into this episode, I want to just kind of recap a couple of quick things. Not a lot has happened really since the last episode in terms of of videos, but there is one that I just had a ton of fun shooting. I shot it over weeks, literally weeks and weeks and weeks. And it is all about cats in particular, Istanbul's cats. So if you're wondering, a why are, well, if you don't know, this is probably the city of cats. There's literally just cats everywhere. Why are they everywhere? Why are they treated so well? all about Islam's cats and a lot, a lot of cute footage of cats. So um, I recommend you check that out, youtube.com foxnomad. You will find it up on foxnomad.com. This whole week is Geek Takeover week. So today I have these six science, okay, six great science and sci-fi with one uh, kind of sort of a caveat in there. I, I, I snuck one in there, but six sci-fi, science podcasts for you to listen to it is some of my favorites but of course i would love to hear your favorite science sci-fi nerdy whatever kind of podcast you're listening to let me know hit me up on twitter at foxnomad so let me introduce you to today's guest so this whole episode we've got dr muhammad noor dr noor is the dean of natural sciences and a professor in the biology department at duke university he specializes in evolution, genetics, and genomics. And I will add another one of his specialties is Star Trek. He currently is a consultant for the new Star Trek shows. So he has they ask him questions when st- stuff comes up related to those things: evolution, genetics, biology, which is pretty, just pretty cool. So he's also the author of Live Long and Evolve, what Star Trek Can Teach Us About evolution, genetics, and life on other worlds. Uh, it is a great book. Uh, I'm not just saying that because Dr. Noor is, is the guest on the podcast, but it is a fantastic, it's really made for people who are Star Trek fans or, or casual or hardcore fans uh, who have different levels of understanding of anthropology, biology, and genetics. So it's a really great starter book. If you're interested in that, if you love science, and you love Star Trek, it is just one of those books that blends them so well. I think you'll really enjoy it, just like I think you're going to really enjoy this episode of the podcast. I, I had a lot of fun. I was just super excited. So, uh, you know, I think that that comes across. So if I, if I sound excited, I, I really am. We talk about all kinds of things ranging from Star Trek, how real aliens are, what's up with the Klingon forehead ridges, and more. And because this is Geek Takeover Week, we get really into the weeds of both subjects. We talk about specific episodes of Star Trek. We talk about different, you know, biology concepts. So if any of those are unfamiliar to you, you can let me know. If you don't know which episode that happens to be, if you're curious, if you don't know all of them by name, well, shame on you. Go memorize them. But if you don't know all the episodes by name, that's fine. Uh, we ex- kind of explain what what the episodes are but I'm guessing I'm guessing if you are a Star Trek fan, you're gonna know the episodes that that we we talk about that come up on this episode. Thank you very much to uh, Dr. Noor. I'd also like to add that he has a YouTube channel as well called Biorekkchy Explains. It is also talking about those things which he specializes in. I'll link to all of these in the show notes so I'll link to Professor Noor's book. I'll link to his YouTube channel as well. That'll all be in the show notes. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. It was so much fun, and I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I had to recording it. Thank you, Professor, for for joining me on the podcast. Um, you combine two of the things that I just absolutely love, which is anthropology, evolution, and Star Trek. It's just... An amazing blend. So I'll let you introduce yourself, um, and then we can get into the discussion. But I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast.
1: Well, I'm honored to have been invited. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Mohamed Noor. I'm a professor of biology, and I'm the currently the dean of natural sciences at Duke University. And I'm an occasional science consultant for the Star Trek universe.
0: So there's one question that that's absolutely the coolest title ever. I mean, I, I think. You know, as, as somebody who loves Star Trek, I always imagine myself in a writer's room or going, hey, I wonder why they put that or they didn't put that. And and Star Trek has this long history of really getting science right and really getting it wrong. Um, but I think the big question, and you've answered it a lot in other interviews, is how likely is it that aliens, and when I say aliens, in, I guess, quote, intelligent aliens would look like us. That... They would like Klingons or Romulans. What are the chances that they'd have five fingers and (laughs) they'd be basically (laughs) our same height, you know?
1: That's a great question. So, I mean, the short answer is not (laughs) not very likely at all so the it's interesting star trek approached this a couple of different times in different episodes try to explain why there are so many humanoid looking aliens so of course the real answer everybody knows the spoiler answer is that you know there's human actors doing this i love when people come up to come up to me after one of my talks and tell me that like you think i didn't think of that (laughs) (laughs) but um so one of the most popular episodes in this regard is from the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, the episode called The Chase, where they suggested this sort of panspermia argument to explain why there are so many humanoids. So four billion years ago, some aliens went to all these different planets. They went to Romulus, Cardassia, to Earth, and they somehow seeded life on all these different planets. And you know, panspermia is a real idea. It's fair. It, it could be true. It's possible that life in, on Earth was somehow seeded from outer space, either actually seeded or some raw materials that allowed it to happen here. That part's fine, but that level of convergence—four billion with a B later, four billion years later—there's no way. I mean, because that, that it almost assumes that just there's like a track that you know evolution will follow this the standard track that's super predictable over that length of time, and the random events play no role. Absolutely absolutely cannot be true and we know the random events played a big role in humans I mean one of the most striking examples that I always like to say is you know 65 million years ago earth was dominated by reptiles and there's those dinosaurs we had that big asteroid impact we had uh, volcanic activity and that's what knocked back the reptiles to allow the mammals to radiate and become you know more abundant more diverse did that happen on all those different planets too <laughs> like, did it do there's no way right and and we're not even taking it further we're interfertile with these other species no, like, you know, we're literally more closely related to grass than we are to a Romulan or to <laughs> a Cardassian. So there's no way we'd be interferable with them. Um, so that explanation doesn't really hold water. It was a good idea. I mean, it's based on something real. So that aspect was cool. And, and kudos to them for even trying to explain something and having, you know, everybody related and so on. Those aspects were good, but just very specifically that we would look that similar, that being the reason. doesn't really work. But there's a couple of other episodes, and one of the, and I'll give just one of them rather than doing all of them. One of the better ones was from the original series, the Paradise Syndrome, where you know Kirk beams down to this planet. Oh, look, there's trees, and you know, there, and there's fish, and oh my goodness, there's a bunch of Native Americans. That was kind of random, <laughs> but there's this obelisk there, and Spock analyzes the obelisk, and he says that it was left there by a super race known as the Preservers that went to different planets and. Pulled individuals off that were in danger of extinction and seeded them in other worlds. So, if you imagine that humans were taken from Earth, say, you know, 100,000 years ago, that's of course before Native Americans, let's say 100,000 years ago, they were seeded on other planets. Maybe on those other planets, they'd get somewhat rougher skin, they might get something else. I mean, that there's no, there's a lot of technical challenges in the sense of how would you keep people alive on some other world, but biologically, that's fair, and we know that interbreeding has happened here on Earth in, in uh, with other species in less time than that, in the sense we know that we have, for most of us, we have some Neanderthal ancestors. So, yeah, I mean, that aspect would be fine, but that's really the only way you could get something that humanoid on some other world is that if they actually came from Earth in a fairly recent time and were put other places.
0: And there is there's an episode, there's a couple of times Star Trek does this, but n- you, now that you bring it up, there's an Enterprise episode where they – Find a planet of humans that are kind of stuck in the 1800s yep. American West. Yep, I always that's wondered... right. They were
1: they were grabbed by they were grabbed by some aliens, and I think they actually actually interbred with aliens in that one. That was in season three. I remember that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it but it seemed what seemed odd about that episode is they wouldn't stop evolving culturally, right? So th- it's not that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't see cultures that stagnant usually. That's kind of funny. <laughs> I agree.
0: Now let's say we 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 went to a planet. Let's say we, we go to Mars, for example, or some other distant planet, and we find Klingon bones and just mm. fossils of Klingons. Okay. Now, you know, obviously in Star Trek their bone structure is different than ours, more or less. they have more ribs and redundant organs, but based on the fossils Mm-hmm. What could we tell? Would they? Would we think they're hominids? Would we go, oh, hey?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably would. I mean, it's it's honestly, to some extent, no different than you know digging and finding you know Homo erectus here on Earth, right? Because it's going to look just about that similar. So yeah, that's probably what we would be thinking. We're thinking like, how on Earth did that happen? How did they come? Again, the most pl- the most plausible explanation is that they came from Earth in some way, but how do they end up on Mars?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so even if the the new new Klingons in, in discovery, which look very different than the 60s Klingons, <laughs> they're still pretty much humans, right? From a biological yeah. point of view, when you look at them.
1: Yeah, at least humanoid. I mean, you know, in the sense that it always seemed to be something with which we shared a very recent common ancestor. It's very unlikely it would be something completely different.
0: And what do you think- un-
1: Unrelated, that is.
0: Yeah, I guess it so- sort of shatters many of our dreams that, oh, maybe, maybe <laughs> aliens could kind of be close looking to us um no,
1: one- no, so it's, you raise a good question there so now close looking in the sense could they be potentially about our size yeah that could be true could they be bipedal maybe i mean that's not that's not crazy so some aspects of look like us are are feasible but it's just that that similar where the bone structure is that close and the overall appearance is that close that's where it starts getting iffy but it's a good good point
0: do you think and do you think an alien would have similar sensors as we have, you know, eyes, ear for sound, smell, it seems yeah. pretty common on earth. So yeah.
1: Well so that's the key is like you said it's on Earth that is very common and partly it's as common it's common on Earth because we share you know common ancestors with all these other species but part of it's also this is what was adaptive on earth so for example let's say you're from a planet that has you know very very light atmosphere there's not as much to vibrate to make sound work as well I mean maybe maybe they will have evolved you know some sort of uh, uh sensor organs that are sensitive to something in the in the em spectrum but maybe not visible light maybe it's like a range within ultraviolet or range within infrared or including our visible light but going way past it i mean even here on earth there's there's animals that can see into ultraviolet or infrared too so it's possible they'd be able to do those things too
0: there's in star trek 4 there's a there's a the whole premise of it i love there's one line by spock where he says the probe, there's a probe coming and they're sending signals to earth that is messing everything up. And he says, why do you assume it's to humans? You know, there's other- Human
1: arrogance, he even said, (laughs) if I remember right.
0: (laughs) And I've always thought about that. It makes me wonder, how do we know? So I guess, you know, Homo sapiens, us are two, 300,000 years old or so from my understanding. And when I looked up whales, I'm like, oh, wait, whales have been- in their more or less current form, for a lot long, millions and millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. So, how do we know that they don't have some kind of intelligence? In terms of, they can't manipulate fire. They're underwater, so yep. they can't really <laughs> make stuff. And they've got fins, yep. you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's true, and and probably a lot of a lot of species probably do have some sort of intelligence that we're not as aware of and we've seen that you know that there are animals like crows that can use tools and things like that so i mean we we see that there's some elements of that now that particular example is a little bit funny in the sense that that probe is coming and it's making these whale sounds in space i'm not even sure what that means like how do you make sounds in space like is, is it emitting that by radio wave and we're pretty sure like uh, we've never seen any indication that whales are using radio signals <laughs> it, it, <laughs> so there's some funny things there that are happening
0: <laughs> yeah like how did they how did that dialogue begin you know how did the whales communicate outside of the sea basically
1: it, exactly exactly and as a suppression we keep hearing that Bear! sound but like what is that like that's it's obviously not doing that in sound in space so it's it's not clear as we're seeing that in the movie what's actually happening there
0: (laughs) it it does make me wonder you know if if we can't when we think about whales we don't try to communicate with the whale leader or or we don't even really (laughs) look at whales as equal to humans i i i could say so fair why do you know it, it always makes me wonder you know if aliens come here and they're so advanced that they can come here, why would, you know, maybe they wouldn't look at us any differently and they just go, these are basically ants on this planet. Yeah, man. roaches. <laughs> so, and, no, you're, you're right. Evolution seems to favor um, animals that are competitive and not very nice. You know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a limit to cooperation.
1: It's true. It's <laughs> true. That's true. It's true. I mean, uh, Star Trek does paint a very positive picture that, like, you know, all these species are out just sort of exploring and seeing things, but uh, they have a few sort of conquerors, but I wouldn't be surprised. There's no, if there were aliens, I wouldn't be surprised. And if they're intelligent, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are sort of what we would perceive as conquerors. <laughs> they're coming to our planet to take some resource. And, of course, a lot of science fiction does that. You know, I mean, V, that whole series, was was sort of premised on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and one thing I noticed in Star Trek, so if we ass- let's pretend Star Trek is real, which I think we all do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. If, let's say you were the the first science officer on the very first mission and you come across the Vulcans and you see Vulcans as, you know, they've got pointy ears, but more or less they look like us. How would a scientist react to that? that? Would that be the most interesting thing about them that, wait, they look exactly like us more or less?
1: That would be shocking. <laughs> that would be truly shocking. I mean, honestly, the fact is not, you know, if we see an alien life, the most likely kind of alien life we'd see was probably honestly microscopic because, you know, you think about like the first, you know, couple of billion years on our planet. That's all that was there, right? So it's very likely we'd see something microscopic. Something that's large and similarly intelligent and can communicate with us and looks that much like us, I'd be like what the heck is going on here i mean honestly probably the very first impression people would have is that it's fake <laughs> that's probably <laughs> what it would be
0: <laughs> so so it would just be shocking and almost disappointing i would imagine just to see all these alien races that pretty yeah. much look human
1: so one thing they've never done and this would sort of answer that big question in, in star trek is take dna sequences of various humans of various other aliens, which, I mean, we've said that they have DNA that's come up in various series, and compare them to each other and compare them, say, to chimp, gorilla, things like that. And you could answer that question about, like, the origins then very easily. Because if, let's say, for example, an ancient hominid went off, and that's what the origin of, say, Romulans and Cardassians or whatever, then we should have DNA sequences that are more similar to Romulans and Cardassians than we do to chimp. So it'd be very straightforward to know, and, and that's, that's not happened as far as I've seen in a Star Trek episode. I mean, they've talked about their DNA and saying it's compatible and things like that, but.
0: Is DNA universal in this? Do, do we expect DNA to be found on other planets or is that also as different, or is it something we, we don't really know, but it, would it be totally different on another planet with another whole of evolution?
1: That's a great question. I mean, to some extent, one of the definitions of life is that there's uh, heredity in some sense. Now, does that have to be DNA? Excuse me. Does that have to be DNA based? No. I mean, there's no reason it has to be DNA based. I mean, DNA is a very good molecule, but it's a very good molecule with the set of conditions we have right here. Right. And this is kind of like the idea of like when we see something that's even water based or carbon based things like that. A lot of that, a lot of those things are perfect for where we are. But let's say we were on a world where the the range of temperatures was from minus 200 to minus to minus 50 celsius water-based organism would not be a good thing to have there at all in contrast something like uh liquid uh liquid ammonia or something like that that might be a much better solvent for life there and the same sort of thing would happen and with regard to heredity and things like that it very much depends on the environment which it came out in terms of what would be optimal
0: one thing i've wondered uh, just all these things i've thought about in star trek is so the i guess the vulcans and the romulan story is The Vulcans had an awakening, and a a subset of them went to another planet, and there's a thousand years of difference between them. And on Star Trek, we see that the the Romulans look somewhat different, that they have ridges. um, Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of explained in in Picard about them being from south. But if, let's say, a a group of human colonists left to another planet and a thousand years passed, would would there be any differences – Physically between us and them, would we be able to see ridges or would they get pointy ears or anything like that?
1: Great question. Uh, I mean, it's possible. A thousand years is not that long. If you, if you, I mean, if you look at, you know, fossils from a thousand years ago or paintings from a thousand years ago, we don't really look that different from people a, thousand, a thousand years ago. But as you start getting into the tens of thousands, I mean, and it could happen. I mean, I wouldn't say it's impossible. It could happen in some, you know, especially there's some very different environment that maybe some trait is very favorite that comes up. But. It's more like in a longer time scale that you would see something like that. Now, the Vulcans are a tough one. So, I mean, I've, I've been, like, when I was giving all those examples, I was explicitly avoiding Vulcans. <laughs> and the reason is the whole copper-based blood. That's that's a hard one. <laughs> I mean, so there, I mean, there are species on Earth which have copper-based blood. A lot of insects have copper-based blood. But that transition from iron-based blood to copper-based blood, that's a tough one. I mean, it's not like just, it's not like I'm going to have a kid and he has copper-based blood and it's fine. <laughs> That's something that I think would take a lot longer of evolution than, than say something that happened in the last couple of uh, tens of thousands of years.
0: That's one of those things that always pops up to me, like, "Hey, that that seems realistic." Yeah, copper blood—that makes sense. There's yeah. animals with copper blood on, on on Earth, so yeah. And
1: I mean, in principle, it could work, but just having a recent common ancestor with us—that that makes it problematic. And having you know good hybrids with us again—that makes it a lot more problematic
0: yeah and and they you know they try to get around that interbreeding problem by clipping in different parts of DNA, i think from yep. both species and yeah a little bit of uh, engineering going on there yeah <laughs> <laughs> how about disease you know would would a species that's so different from us I'm guessing their germs wouldn't affect us probably likely
1: not okay, no, because, i not mean, because a lot of our germs are very much uh, tailored to us now it's possible something random would be there but you know again if you you know when you're raising e coli the optimal temperature for raising e coli is exactly human body temperature so if you had some alien from you know that had maybe a different body temperature you know and you put them on you they're not they're not adapted to you whatsoever. Now, every now and then species that are not adapted to a particular environment can like go crazy, but that's uh, it's much less common.
0: And you brought up a point that in your book um, that made me really think about convergent evolution. So one thing that I know Star Trek does, and I know obviously practically why they have to do it, the aliens more or less look like us, but their internal organs, when they look inside, there's like all these different configurations and and so on and that kind of seems like an example of convergent evolution that these yep. animals would build spaceships because they look like us so they would build ships that basically fit creatures our size but that their internal organs could be totally different
1: absolutely absolutely i mean and uh, uh, if you think of sort of say like body form, say, say like a shark and a dolphin, those are very, very distantly related species. The body form overall, when you just sort of look at it from the outside is very sim- similar, but like one has, you know, bones made of cartilage, one has bones made of bone, you know, the you know one is cold blooded, one is warm blood. So like the details that, that didn't matter. So the, the reason they have that similar form is because they had a similar environment. They're trying to get through that environment in a very similar way. So that's what caused that similarity in just basic form, but you're absolutely right. There's no reason why the internal parts would have to be the same at all.
0: So that's, yeah, that's, I always found that to be a little bit less believable originally. I was like, oh, well, if they look like us, they would have, but having a heart and lungs, I'm like, okay, that's pretty similar. Um, And and when it comes to Klingons and redundant organs, (laughs) it it always makes me wonder, you know, there's this misconception that evolution makes things better in the sense that there's a, a goal So, oh, redundant organs—that that's great. You know, who wouldn't want you know extra kidneys and hearts? And so the the tough Klingons have more organs. So it kind of makes me wonder if they would have just died out, or you know, if Klingons were that violent, they would have (laughs) just killed themselves.
1: it's interesting in that regard, because what you would have to assume happened is the culture evolved before the redundant organs. Because, I mean, most species don't have redundant organs, right? But the culture of that sort of being very warrior-like would have to evolve first. And then those Klingons, which then didn't have redundant organs, didn't reproduce as much as those which did, and then that allowed for the the redundant organs to spread. So the cultural aspect would have to have pre- preceded the, the, the need for the redundant organs, I would think, in order for natural selection to have favored it.
0: Yeah, and 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 the 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 cultural differences would would be so vast just between different alien species. I would oh imagine. You know? Oh
1: my goodness! Yeah, and actually, that was one nice thing in Star Trek. Like, I don't remember. There was an episode. I think it was in, I think it was in Enterprise, where um, they had some aliens come over and they were really offended, and everybody didn't understand why they were so offended because they came for a very brief time and then they left. But it turned out it was because the humans ate in front of them, and they were horribly offended. Like that's such a private thing. Why would you do that? <laughs> so yeah that was that was that was really thoughtful I was like that's cool
0: yeah i would imagine that first contacts would probably go wrong all the time that they, they would just yep. be you know maybe even just speaking or, or showing yourself in a view screen would be offensive
1: mm-hmm. um, no, that's right that's right <laughs> or maybe, maybe that's even, the thing maybe that's the deal with the breen. maybe that's why they wear the things so it's yeah. actually cultural <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. or the ship positions you know when they meet they're always face to face and maybe that's rude <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: Um, It's kind of funny how they're always on the same plane. Like you never see a ship coming up like this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They're always just, and they're so close. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You've got space. Just, you know, don't, maybe don't be that close. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, so your book, uh, Live Long and Evolve, where did that idea come from? How did you get the idea to write the book? And what was your research like? You mentioned it in the book, but your star sure. trek research <laughs> like. sure
1: sure sure so this started uh, i guess the, the process started in 2014 when i went to my first convention this was uh dragon con it's a big sci-fi comic convention in atlanta and when i was there i found out they actually have a lot of science of talks and i was like i was fascinated by that I was like wow i didn't know that that was a thing that was really cool so I talked to the track director for the Trek track at Dragon Con, who's Garrett Wong. He's the, he's uh, he plays Harry Kim in Star Trek Voyager. And I asked him he's like I'm an evolutionary biologist. I mean, I could give a talk on evolution in Star Trek. And he said, yeah, we'd love to have it. I mean, we like more content. We like having a lot of science in there. So I set that up. And I think and then in 2016, I gave that talk for the first time. And I remember the first time I gave it, I was, I was terrified. Like, are people going to like this? And there were like 200 people in the room. <laughs> I was like, people really showed up for this. Thing. Now, of course, Dragon Con is gigantic. So 200 people out of 80,000 isn't that big a proportion. But still. So that, was, that went well. And I started, I started doing more and more talks. Around this time then, uh, Princeton University Press, which is the publisher for my book, reached out to me and said, we're interested in you writing a – a book for a, a, pub, a broad audience and also giving a talk about it here at Princeton. And the general outreach talk I used to give at that time, not at conventions, was basically Why Evolution is True. And it's based on a book by my former PhD advisor called Why Evolution is True. <laughs> that book already exists. I mean, There was no way I was going to write something better than it. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily good book. Um, so I mentioned this to her and she said, well, do you have any other outreach talks you ha- that you give? I said, well, there's something. <laughs> it's a little non-standard. So I pitched that to her and she thought that was a great idea. She's like, yeah, I'd love to do this. this you know, it's very much outside their normal, <laughs> their normal audience, but it was fun. So I spent the next year after that. Basically, rewatching or going over the scripts of every single Star Trek episode and movie, which at the time, there was 13 movies and over 700 episodes, <laughs> so that was a lot. And people keep on saying, why don't you just do a word search or something like that? The problem is they don't always use the same terms in Star Trek that are actually the scientific terms that apply for something. Like There'll be a situation that comes up, but you can't just word search and find a situation <laughs> or something that applies. Yeah. So I had to go through all because I was very confident, of course, on the science that that part I had, I had pretty well, except for the astrobiology that was new for me. But all the rest of it, the genetics, evolution, that that was fine because I teach classes on that all the time and I do research on that. But I had to see where it was covered in Star Trek and have a comprehensive list. So I made this giant, you know, spreadsheet, and it was basically separated by chapter and then by episode, and just like okay first episode, The Cage, there was some reference to this, some reference to this, and put it in the right thing. Then when I was writing, I would go to the appropriate column. Okay, chapter one, pull that out. Here's all the relevant episodes. Here's all the things I can bring to it. Now, the format of the book basically follows my class at Duke University, which which I've taught for many years, called Introduction to Genetics and Evolution. It largely follows that. It's basically the same content. And what I do is I basically teach the same material, but I just insert star trek examples from it and how is it depicted in star trek and sometimes the depiction is really good i use that as an instructive example sometimes the depiction has problems but i use that still as an instructive example like you know this doesn't really work you can see why maybe they thought it would but this is a common misconception a lot of people have you know so i tried to use it as instructive in that
0: and what are some of the common questions you get in your talks or in your classes what are, what's the the what are the main uh, sort of questions about biology and, and biology and also related to Star Trek. Sure.
1: So in terms of, um, I mean, in my, in my regular class, there's a lot of questions about genetics. People often struggle with genetics. People like it in the sense that it, it seems modern and it's interesting, especially as people now are doing more and more of these genetic ancestry tests or genetic tests for diseases. People have a lot of questions about that. There's a particular process called genetic recombination that I know people tend to get stuck on as students in my class. That's one I, I sort of barely touch on in the, in the, in the book because it, obviously Star Trek doesn't have that much in-depth things, but actually sometimes it does. There's, there's some examples that, that you could pull for that. Um, in terms of the Star Trek pieces, like when I give the outreach talks, people are always asking, like, what's the likelihood of finding aliens and what would they look like if we find them? That's the by far the most common question I tend to get. Um I'm trying to think if there's others that come up often. It's just pretty broad spread. It's often very situation specific. Well, let's say an episode blah, this thing happened. Is there, is there any scientific basis for it? And and it's honestly, it's rare the answer is just, no, that's just completely fictional. I mean, well, obviously it is fictional in the sense that, like it didn't happen, <laughs> but it's, not, it's rarely just crazy. That's the nice thing about Star Trek in general, that you can see that they try to make explanations for things. They don't just toss it out there. It's not fantasy. It's true science fiction where they try to have some basis for it. And if they can't, then they get it as close as possible and they just have a small leap.
0: And I would say it seems like from reading your book that the biology and evolution part so the physics part it seems maybe it's you know i guess the advancement of physics has been maybe further along i would say or perhaps they had a better understanding in the 60s and then 70s 80s 90s yeah and there was definitely our, there was
1: no genetics in the six well i mean there was no, there no people not even sequenced dna in the 1960s obviously genetics existed but there people not even sequenced dna at that point in time so if you look at the original series there's like almost no mention of it
0: yeah, which is you. You point out some examples where they could have easily solved the case with just a DNA test, and they're using like voice prints or random things, you know. Exactly. So, and and when you consult for the for the new series, um, sure. is it is it all the new series? So Discovery, Picard, for uh, it-
1: it's basically. So I, I should clarify. So I. They, Star Trek has a science advisor on staff, and that's Dr. Erin mm-hmm. McDonald. So she's sort of the point person for all the Star Trek universe. And then, as they have specific needs, they can then, you know, have sort of uh, consultation requests. And that's the kind of thing I've gotten. I've gotten. I'm sort of like the occasional hitman as opposed to the actual employee. So, you know, for example, I've gotten a couple requests for I think two of the series where, you know, there's a we have a problem. Can you help us out? And sometimes it's a big problem where it's you know something that's you know, not necessarily even spanning an episode, but maybe an arc of spanning multiple episodes. Sometimes it's just like, here's a bit of dialogue, you know, can you, can you make sure this isn't crazy dialogue? <laughs> this would be actually the kind of things that in this situation, they would say.
0: And how do the writers know what might be a science mistake? Or, or you know, I, I can imagine maybe they have preconceptions or they just don't know and they assume something's correct or, you know, how how do they, how how do they know when to ask?
1: <laughs> that's a great question i mean so some of them i should point out some of them are, are very on top of these things so um erica Lippold is one, was one of the writers for season two of discovery and is, is one of the spearheaders for the section 31 series she has a phd in molecular biology so i mean some of them are really on top of that kind of thing um i think i think i think if in doubt they're going to probably run it first by dr aaron mcdonald And if so she's an astrophysicist. So if it's something that's, you know, if it's something fairly simple DNA based, Jim, she's going to be able to answer that. If it's something that's in depth, she might then shoot me an email or give me a quick call and say, hey, (laughs) what about this thing?
0: So I got to bring up two episodes, which I'm sure you asked about a lot. They're not the best examples of evolution on Star Trek. Can I guess the two? Sure. Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> Genesis and Threshold.
0: Yes, exactly. 100%. <laughs> Those
1: are by far the two most common ones I guess asked about.
0: <laughs> so, Threshold, Tom Paris goes, breaks the Warp 10 barrier, comes back, yep. and then turns into uh, basically uh, some kind of slug and then has <laughs> slug babies with Captain Janeway, which yep. um, is weird. Yep. Then I remember watching Genesis which is, there's a, a ret- I think it's a retrovirus that infects the crew. Um, Captain Picard and Data return to the Enterprise, so they're off ship, they come back, and you know, I think Rikers and Neanderthal, and then uh, you know people are evolving into their <laughs> earlier forms. And the one that always stuck out is Barkley, I think, is a spike. Yes. so he's like a spider yep. person. Yep.
1: And that's the, by far the most problem, I mean, all is problematic, but that's the most problematic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking, wait a minute. Okay, we share DNA with spiders, right? If, if you were an alien, you would see that, okay, these two things are related at some level. Yes. Could you recombine human DNA to make a spider? No. Would that be
1: possible? <laughs> <laughs> no. So we don't show this. Is, this shows a common misconception that people have with evolution all the time is that the difference between sharing a common ancestor with a, uh, with a modern day species versus descending from an ancestral species. They're not the same thing. I mean, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, I am a descendant from my great grandparents, I am not a descendant from my cousin right and mm-hmm. basically like us and spiders are like cousins I mean we're we're in the same generation we are today present <laughs> whereas my cousins I share great grandparents also grandparents but we share some uh the, those common ancestors and that's the problem that we don't have spider ancestors but over time, in one lineage, spiders evolved, and in our lineage, humans evolved. But if you go back to that ancient time, it wasn't something that was like half spider, half human. (laughs) It was just this completely different form.
0: (laughs) So would you be able to take human DNA and then recombine it in a way that would create that last common ancestor with spiders, which would probably be Way back, oh, yeah, probably too much has gone there. So the
1: way the way it was explained in that particular episode, so they actually used a, they used a terminology thing incorrectly. And I think they were trying to do one thing, and they did and they did it slightly wrong. So what they said is they said it, um, there was a T cell, which I don't know why it was a T cell, but whatever. This T cell activated the introns in individuals, and they described the introns as latent genetic material that, that used to have a function earlier, but now it does not. Now. They sort of mixed up two different things there. I think they were describing what's actually called pseudogenes. Those are you know ancient genes that used to have a function but now do not. Introns are sort of latent genetic material, but they're not. They didn't necessarily used to have a function at all, right? The, the, so that they kind of mixed up those two things. And honestly, even if you did have, even if you activated pseudogenes in so let me give an example. We actually have a pseudogene for vitamin C, right? So we could actually. There's so a lot of species, not not a lot of primates, but a lot of other species actually make their own vitamin C we do not. We need to get it from our diet, but we still have that gene that, that could in principle make vitamin C. You could you could click that gene on, but over the millions of years, or I don't remember how many years for when it deactivated, over the time that the vitamin C gene deactivated, it's accumulated a whole bunch of mutations. So turning it on, it's not going to make it work (laughs) i mean it's very 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 broken because since it had no function for a long time there was no natural selection to stop more and more and more mutations from accumulating in there and that's going to be the same problem you have with trying to get to any ancestral form that you know things have changed it's not it's not like that the code that was necessary to make our ancestor from you know thousands or millions of years ago is just there and ready to go it's it's gone
0: (laughs) Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. So, so yeah. I've never thought of it in that way that, you know, you kind of, the way they presented the episode is all the code is there. It's just a matter of recombining it in in such a way. Um, so yeah, we're turning it on in some way. Yeah. No, I mean, it's gone. (laughs) So going to, I guess, good, potentially good examples. One is from enterprise, which I thought was interesting. So where they explained the Klingons and why they look different in the '60s. You know, uh-huh. they look human, uh-huh. and then obviously in the you know after TNG and and so on, they they have ridges and they look different. And in Discovery, they're very different. Um, and they try to explain that with I think with a retrovirus. I think that's, that's how correct. they try to explain that. That's correct. Plausible at all?
1: Uh, so it's interesting. Now, the getting the genetic material into an individual, that part is potentially okay. Right, so I mean, you could you could set up some sort of you know some sort of virus that would then insert its genetic material into us. You know, that, that, I mean, in principle, I mean, the, the the specifics are tough, but in principle, that could happen. One of the big things that all science fiction tends to do is that it assumes that you have something inserted into you. That a it gets into all your cells, and b that it just immediately manifests in this change of form. <laughs> so this was, this was, you know this is extremely true in threshold, which you mentioned earlier. So yeah, could you get DNA into an individual that would make them have forehead ridges? Potentially, it's tough to get into all the cells on the forehead. That part's a little bit tough, but technically. It could happen, but then just like, it's not like then, boom, you'd have ridges or, or the ridges would go away or something like that. I mean, the, the cells are already there. The structure is already there. So it'd have to be like over, you know, at best, you know, weeks, but, you know, more likely more like years that they would slightly gradually start softening out as it's basically as the cells are turning over and producing new cells, then they would be producing that new form. But it's not just like there's immediate cell turnover and everything is just now that new form.
0: So, it's not like we could engineer retrovirus to make people taller, for example. So, you know, we would no. just get it, go to the doctor, get an injection, and hey, you're taller or faster or whatever you want to be. <laughs> you know?
1: And even if you could, it wouldn't be instantaneous. I mean, it would, it would take a long time. It would take as long as it would take to get taller if if you were still growing. Yeah. You
0: know? One thing I, I really enjoy about your book is that you point out in, in multiple ways how everything on earth all the life has a single origin so we're all related um, you know humans are related to trees and if you know and amoeba and so if you were an alien examining us you'd go they're all related which made me wonder let's say three billion years ago an alien visits the, the, you know the aliens from the chase and they seed earth even though there's already life on earth so now you have two different origins, truly one alien origin. Over time, would they, those two origins mix? And then we would, it would seem to us to have a single origin now, you know, billions of years later?
1: It's a good question. I mean, again, it pro- the answer is probably no, but it really would depend on the specifics because probably it would depend on how compatible the other form was. So you mentioned, for example, the, something coming three billion years ago. If it's not even DNA-based, you know, there's no way, there's no way really to mix anything. There's nothing there that that can. It's kind of like mixing us with like rocks or something like that. We're not part rock. <laughs> now that said, if it was something that happened to be DNA based in some way, I mean, there is the potential for some sort of horizontal gene transfer. Maybe you could have little bits that have come from one to the other. But the the, the fact that it would be DNA based and it would be something that was actually compatible in us, it didn't like it didn't come in us and just immediately kill you or 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 just you know was treated as though it was some invading molecule <laughs> so if that all worked it would imply that we were related but uh, i'd have to go with probably no but i wouldn't completely close the door on that one the most likely thing the most likely thing is of course that just one of those two lineages will have just died out that maybe the earth formed and this you know essentially could be true maybe a different lineage of life started four billion years ago and then Arline, or, or started to say five billion years ago, and then our lineage started four billion years ago, and it just replaced it. And there's no trace of the other one there anymore. That's possible. I mean, we can't rule that out.
0: You do mention Battlestar Galactica. Spoiler alert yeah. for people: there, there's a point where they arrive on a planet, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, these are, these are. Oh, there are other types of humans here. Fine, <laughs> perfect. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm guessing there. <laughs> that seemed pretty ridiculous that Cylons and humans. Could mix to make humans, you know, make modern yeah. humans.
1: <laughs> well, the Cylon thing's a little bit funny because with them, I mean, they actually are engineered. We don't know the specifics of, like, especially those humanoid looking Cylons. Like, maybe, the, maybe they basically took human DNA to make themselves in some way. And maybe that's why they're somehow compatible. Essentially, it might be just, essentially, it might be, we're calling them machines, but they might be just engineered people rather than mm-hmm. truly what we actually consider to be machines. But yeah, the, the showing up at Earth and there's grass over and trees and humanoids. like, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they just seem totally fine with it. Like that happens all yeah,
1: the time. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I mean, that's generally true with a lot of science fiction. We see this in, in Star Trek, too. I mean, they go to so many pla- – like how many plants have trees? It's like everywhere, like trees got everywhere. Like how did trees get everywhere?
0: <laughs> when you mentioned that, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. They, they, they arrive at all these planets that have plants everywhere and they're like, yep, no life. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, wait. Even setting, aside, even setting aside the no life, even if they said, oh look, there's life, but it's still like, why are there trees on every planet?
0: <laughs> ah, that's interesting. Yeah, there wouldn't necessarily be trees and grass and things that we just no. assume. Yeah. Uh, amazing wow.
1: it looks just like california
0: <laughs> <laughs> so i have just two questions i don't Please. want to keep you too long but um oh, imagine if we could what's the, i guess what's the next step for for biology that we can't where we don't rely on earth in other words you know maybe it's it's increase in uh, improvement in Telescope technology, so maybe we can get a better idea of what kind of gases are on planets, or, or maybe even a picture of, of, an, of a planet where we can see, you know, land masses and things. Would that be the kind of the, uh, the next, assuming aliens don't, you know, land and, and say hello in the meantime?
1: Oh, in terms of finding aliens, is that what you mean? What's our best bet for that?
0: Or or just kind of leapfrogging our knowledge of what might be possible without relying on what we know on Earth.
1: Gotcha. Probably the best thing would somehow be sampling liquids on other worlds and looking, I mean, because again, I, I still think that if we're going to find life, it's much more likely we're going to find something microscopic than that we're going to just find something that looks like a Vulcan <laughs> showing up and saying, live long and prosper. <laughs> I think that would be the way to go. The, the tough thing that we have, and this is a big challenge with a lot of space missions right now, we have this, we have this thing called COSPAR, the Committee on Space planetary protection or something like that i can't remember exactly what it stands for but basically like we're very concerned about us accidentally seeding life on other worlds so let's say we were to send a plant uh, a drone to europa and you know it lands on or some other moon or something like that and it it drills and look it finds some dna Did. Did it put the DNA there? Did it have some, you know, contaminating stuff that it inserted into there? Or is it something that was actually already there? And how, And if there's something already there, how do we make sure we don't accidentally destroy it by, by just going there and examining it? I think solving that problem will be huge. And then once we can solve that problem, being able to study liquids other places and seeing if there's some sort of self-replicating forms with heredity and things like that. That's, I think, probably the most promising way we would find other life. And we're gonna have, to, and it's not gonna be like the first place we look. <laughs> we're gonna have to look in a lot of places before we see it, probably.
0: <laughs> but overall, the 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 case for evolution, you think on Earth, the, the process to me seems so natural, just natural evolution. You know? But it just mm-hmm. seems like it makes sense that that the things that would help you survive would prosper, and the things that didn't work yeah. out, you know, if you're a slow antelope. The lions are yeah. all around eating you. You're not going to make it. So the species is going to, um, yeah. you th- any, ch- it, if, you know, I if want- you have
1: if you have heredity and and variation, you know, basically and essentially the traits that that differ in terms of your survival reproduction, you will get natural selection. It's a mathematical inevitability. It has nothing to do specifically with DNA or nothing to do specifically with being carbon based. Again, if there's heredity, if there's variation, and there's differences in survival or reproduction, you'll get it.
0: And it's interesting, the the Borg, you know, artificial, but they kind of follow a similar pattern where they don't assimilate everybody. They're picking and choosing the the best or the most advanced species to assimilate.
1: Yeah, we haven't seen those Borg, uh, we haven't seen those uh, triple Borgs yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. They've got to put that in something. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So as a final question, I'm going to leave you with an easy one. Did Captain Janeway... Killed Tuvix.
1: (laughs) I knew it was going to be Tuvix. (laughs) It's funny. I remember watching that episode with my son. Um, This is when he was fairly young. I remember he he was very upset about it. He he, was like, he he really liked Tuvix and he Mm -hmm. he was very upset with that decision. I mean, I I get it from her perspective. I get why she did it. I mean, was it morally the right question? I I think morally it's very equivocal at best. But in terms of the, what's the, what, what would maximize their odds of getting back to the Alpha Quadrant? Probably the separation was a little bit better in that regard. So, I mean, it's two instead of one, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's the kind of episode that makes Star Trek great. There's no yeah. solid answer, really, because yep. it's kind of right on both sides. It's, it's tough. It's um, tough. <laughs> <laughs> poor Tuvix, <Tubics>, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one's a great one. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorites because it starts out as a comedy and then it really gets serious. And then at the end, it's just the oh, doctor. Wretched. Yeah, it's 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 really great. Um, so uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been fascinating. I could talk hours and hours and hours on this subject. I'll also link to your book uh, in the show notes and everywhere people can find it. So it's definitely worth reading, especially if you love star trek or biology or you're interested in aliens this is a good book to read you know and maybe thank you and maybe it gives us hope that you know aliens will one day show up or that maybe you know it seems them up from a lander (laughs) (laughs) yeah so maybe there's i guess that we evolved is the good evidence that other species can at least get this far (laughs) Um,
1: well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a wonderful conversation. Let yeah, thanks
0: again. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this special Geek Takeover Week episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I hope you had a blast. We'll be off for a couple of weeks, coming back sometime early September. So it's going to be a little bit quiet on the podcast side. But in that time, I hope you stay happy and healthy. And I can't wait to talk to you in the next episode.